Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. I'm Monish Rath, and I am grateful to all of you for participating in this month's OSHA 3030. We have a great topic. Uh, as I had said before, I am Monish Rath, and I'm a partner at the law firm Keller and Heckman in Washington, D.C., and we're coming to you today from Keller and Heckman, Heckman's offices here in Washington. And I'm joined today by a dear friend and my colleague of more than 20 years, I think, uh, about 20 years, yep. David Sarvati. David, welcome. Thanks, Manish. I'm glad to be here. Well, for those of you who uh, have any experience in the OSHA world, you'd know the name David Sarvati. He is one of the leading lights anywhere in the country on OSHA law, both having practiced both in federal OSHA states as well as state plan states. In fact, has been lead counsel on the largest case in at least one state's state plan uh, and and has pretty much seen uh, citation contests under uh, any significant standard that, that I've come across. So I'm grateful, uh, David, to you for, for joining us. And, uh, and David, we have a great topic today, but before I get into it, I also want to point out to those who may be new to the OSHA 3030 community. First of all, I'd like to welcome you if you're new to the OSHA 3030 community. And I'd like to point out that all of our prior OSHA 3030 episodes are libraried on our website, which is at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. This is a program that we, we do in about 30 minutes, and we've been doing it every 30 days for since since actually August of 2013. So we're in our, our seventh calendar year of doing this. And uh, August, this, this particular episode marks our anniversary. Uh, so, so we've done over 70 episodes, maybe 75 episodes, uh, and, and they're all on OSHA 3030. Many of the uh, prior episodes of the last few years are available as a podcast, and if you subscribe to OSHA 3030 and find our, our uh, podcast, you can catch some of the prior episodes from the past few years. Uh, with that said, David, as you know, the lifeblood of the OSHA 3030 is that we ask every community member to forward their invitation when they get it by email to at least three others who are in-house counsel or safety and health professionals. And and that's what's keeping this program going because the uh, registration fee is zero. It's complimentary to you. All we ask is that you spread the good word. Yeah, Manish, congratulations on making it six years. I hadn't realized it was quite that long. Yeah. We have, a, we have a great topic today. This is a, a topic... <clears throat> that's near and dear to my heart when we talk about enforcement and you know how do employers demonstrate that they've done what they're supposed to do. This topic happens to ha deal with the issue of uh, employer uh, diligence in uh, setting up training and enforcing safety and health programs. And we've got a really good case on this today to discuss, Monish. Yeah, that's right. It's Berg Electric. And the other thing that I, uh, that's near and dear to my heart is it's a it's a construction case, and we do work for a lot of construction firms. We are heavily involved in the construction sector, and these are issues that we deal with every single day. Uh, but I think you're right. Since it centers around uh, the, the training and the policy development, it's it's a really important case for everyone listening today. Uh, well, let's talk about what we're going to talk about. First, we'll, we'll, let's set up the background on the recent ALJ decision and, uh, in, in addition, what the ALJ looked at when he looked at the Berg Electric case uh, in terms of development of safety policies as well as the training program at Berg Electric. And then finally, 
their self-inspection, monitoring, I'd call it, and and uh, disciplinary actions. Finally, as always, we'll finish off with a practical list of takeaway items uh, on what employers can do in light of this decision. So with that said, let's get into it. So the case is Secretary versus Berg Electric Corporation, and it involves a construction project at a casino on Indian lands uh, in uh, California. And this is uh, at the San Manuel or San Manuel, Manuel Casino in Highland, California. And they were performing, Berg Electric Corporation was performing installation of electrical uh, systems, not only the audiovisual, but also the electrical systems generally that would have supplied uh, all of the electrical features inside the casino. So I'd say a fairly complex uh, electrical project. Uh, compared to your regular household electrical yeah. work, Maj, it was complex largely because it was a kind of a retrofit, where they had to go in after the ceiling was installed, and uh, install the remaining electrical systems. I also want to point out one thing: you, you mentioned that this is a California location, but it is a federal case because, um, as those of us practice in this area know, when there is a, a, a Native American Indian facility or a, a federal government facility, the federal enforcement authority takes precedence uh, and the state is not involved. Otherwise, this would have been a case involving Cal OSHA and the Cal OSHA appeals process. But here again, we're in the federal system. Yeah, that's right. In fact, the California OSHA was initially notified of the accident and referred it to federal OSHA because it was on tribal lands. That's an interesting and complicated question for those of you who have any projects on tribal lands. It is not, although OSHA has taken the position that they have jurisdiction on tribal lands, that is not going to always be the case. There are some tribal lands that have engaged in treaties with the U.S. government. The San Manuel uh, tribal lands was not involved in a treaty, was not operating under a treaty with the United States. And so OSHA, the, the Ninth Circuit has taken the position that uh, OSHA has jurisdiction or authority, but that would not necessarily be the case simply because we are talking about Native American tribal lands. It would depend. Uh, so, so that's an interesting question, and I think that that also supports a, a overarching point, David, which is employers should question everything, challenge everything that's applicable, including OSHA's jurisdiction, where a sound argument uh, can be made, and that's the first question to be examined. So thank you for pointing yeah, that out. I, I think that's true, Manish. And that, what that points out is that you need an attorney who's versed in these kinds of issues because they don't necessarily jump out at you when you first look at the case. That's right. I've represented casinos on Indian lands, and the question of which labor and employment or OSHA laws apply is the first threshold question we had to ask ourselves when we were representing them. Uh, many years ago. And so so let's talk about uh, Berg Electric. So as you say, David, it was new construction, but uh, for reasons of, of getting behind schedule, they had to put the hard, hard shell ceiling up first and then do the electrical work. Not an ideal order in which to do things. It's just the way it turned out. So what they had to do in order to get the electrical conduits uh, installed and then cable through those conduits is they had to poke holes in the finished ceiling, send a scissor lift up, uh, and then load the product onto beams, support beams, structural beams. And then when workers were up there, they first had to apply decking to the structural beams. Uh, while tied off, they would have uh, performed the work if they couldn't do it from the scissor lift. And then, uh, then workers could go up and perform work again while tied off. The hard shell ceiling was merely drywall, standard drywall. So had a worker 
fallen off of the support beams or the decking that Berg Electric later installed, they almost certainly would have fallen right through the drywall and down to the floor below, which was about 24 feet below. Right. And which is exactly what happened in, during the case. Right. That and set so, the case off. That set the case off, right. And so that employee fell through the ceiling uh, without fall protection and hit the floor 24 feet below, multiple fractures to spine and other uh, uh, bones and, and was hospitalized. And then, and then OSHA stepped in and conducted an inspection, and they issued citations. So the interesting part is when they conducted the inspections, they, they interviewed a lot of employees, and they discovered a few facts that, frankly, I think it's important to point out up front that Berg Electric wasn't even aware of, and that often happens. They were interviewing employees, and they found out that two days prior to the accident, another employee had been walking along the beams above the drywall ceiling and had taken a misstep, and f- one foot f- slipped off and fell to the drywall and poked through. He did not fall off the beam, however, and so he poked a hole with his foot through the ceiling, got back on the beam. He was tied off. And uh, the next day, a supervisor was walking the site, conducting his daily inspections, and noticed the hole in the ceiling and immediately instructed that that afternoon additional reminder training be conducted. Within the same next two days, another employee was, oh, that employee was given a verbal warning, by the way, uh, although he was tied off, he wasn't given permission to go up there yet. He had gone up there to, to I think, preload some material. Later on, uh, within the next two days, even after that refresher training had been conducted, uh, a, another employee had gone up to put plywood uh, up on the uh, support beams bef- above where the, where the work would have been done, above the ceiling. And... Uh, there was another instance where we, he was in the scissor lift and the, an employee had, was loading materials on the, onto the support beam. And uh, for five minutes, it said, according to interviews, uh, that he was not tied off when he was uh, loading material onto the support beam. Nothing happened during that incident. He came back down. Uh, but in both of those instances, the supervisors were unaware that this had happened. Uh, they only became aware after OSHA became aware when they conducted interviews after the injury had occurred. Yeah, Mosh, I think it's important to uh, go to the next slide. The uh, understand exactly how this was supposed to work. The, the company had set done this uh, hazard analysis and determined that the procedure they wanted to follow was to open up the ceiling using the scissor lift, put plywood across the beams, as a support for the people to work off of and also for the uh, product that was being used, being installed, to be loaded. And during the process of setting up the plywood, they were supposed to be tied off working from the uh, uh, scissor lift uh, only to go onto the uh, beams when they were installing the drywall, uh, installing, I'm sorry, the plywood. And before any other work was done, the the plywood installation was supposed to be inspected. So they had a fairly thorough and detailed procedure that they were supposed to be following. And that clearly in the case, in the description you just showed, in at least a couple of cases prior to the accident, that wasn't followed. Manish? Yeah, that's right. And and what wasn't followed was that they'd gone up before they'd gotten permission. Correct because they should have set up the plywood decking first and then gotten permission 
after between the two, once the decking was set up, they're supposed to call the supervisor. Supervisor takes a look, approves it, and then gives people permission. That's exactly right. Uh, but in this case, they went up without permission and without the supervisor's knowledge. The supervisor didn't know either of these two incidents or that people were up there without being given permission. So, so in order to understand why that's important, I think it's important to understand the elements of any OSHA citation under a specific safety standard require that there needs to be a hazardous condition and that the employer be aware of the hazardous condition and that employees are exposed and that the employer be aware that the employees were exposed. So there's two types of employer knowledge that I think OSHA has the burden of establishing. Well, OSHA issued citations for this event where the employee fell through the ceiling to the floor 24 feet below. Berg Electric's response was, we didn't have knowledge that the employee wasn't properly tied off. And OSHA's response was, you know, that knowledge element uh, really has sort of two options that we can pursue, OSHA said. We can show that you had actual knowledge both of the violative condition and that the employee was exposed to the violative condition and didn't stop it. Or we can show that through the exercise of a reasonable amount of diligence, a reasonable person would have determined or discovered that exposure. And OSHA's position was in the Berg Electric case, maybe the employer didn't know, but they certainly should have because he was working and if you had been monitoring, you would have caught it. And that's what the whole case turns on. And that's what all of the evidence that the administrative law judge examined was uh, being examined for the purpose of trying to make a determination about, was whether or not it would have been reasonable to say that Berg Electric should have discovered the presence of an employee above the ceiling not being tied off. All right. And as we can see on the slide here, the courts have de defined reasonable diligence to uh, uh, take into account the adequacy of the work rules and training programs, how well the employer anticipates the hazards, what they do in the way of supervising and disciplining employees that is taking steps to prevent the violations. And that, I think, is the, sort of the gravamen of why we wanted to talk about this case to begin with, because it was a really good uh, summary and uh, presentation of evidence on the part of the employer about the the program that they had in place, the training, and what the supervisors were doing to make sure people were following the rules. Yeah, I think that's right, David. And so, so let's talk about OSHA's arguments. Uh, when they when they wanted to make a case that Berg Electric had constructive knowledge of the alleged violations, in other words, that they should have known through a reasonable exercise of diligent, uh, reasonably diligent uh, efforts to monitor for these kinds of uh, alleged violations. Uh, they, the agency argued essentially that the company had failed to establish a policy for fall protection that was adequate, that, they, that Berg Electric had failed, OSHA alleged, in providing an adequate level of training and that OSHA alleged Berg Electric had failed to conduct reasonably thorough or frequent inspections or monitoring for compliance with its policy uh, for fall protection, and that finally uh, OSHA alleged that Berg Electric had failed to implement an effective disciplinary process in instances where there were violations. Uh, now, I'm just giving you an overview of OSHA's position. We'll get into each of these in their turn. But I, I think that the, it's important to point out that OSHA conducted interviews 
and concluded that an employee had not complied with Berg Electric's policies. And from that, OSHA argued, well, if he hadn't complied, then evidently their policies weren't sufficient. Evidently, his training wasn't sufficient. Evidently, they weren't monitoring or else they would have caught him. And that is the question that they presented to the judge. That was the logic that they they presented to the judge. Right. And Manish, we know that's a false logic. Basically, what they're saying is, well, the accident happened. There must be a cause, and it has to be the employer's fault. And that's unfortunately the premise that a lot of people start with and don't when they don't examine the details of the elements that we're going to talk about now. Yeah, David, I think that's right. As you know, uh, that philosophy from compliance, safety, and health officers explains the largest fraction of my entire case portfolio of uh, cases where we defend employers in state plan and federal states is that if anything went wrong, the, there's something the employer could have done right. to have prevented it, and you didn't do it, and so that means you violated the standard. And that logic, I agree, is a, a false logic. And so, so let's get into it. Well, the administrative law judge examined the, the policy implemented by Burke Electric, developed by Burke Electric, and they found, first of all, that it was written. There was a written po uh, fall protection policy. It had been applied already in the first phase of construction, and then they did a hazard analysis for the second phase of construction and determined that the written fall protection plan was still relevant and effective for the second phase of construction. So not only did they show that they had a policy, but that they were evaluating it on a case-by-case -case basis to determine its relevance, its applicability. Right, Manish. I think it's really also important to point out here, this policy and, and uh, work rules that they had established were site-specific. They had done the hazard analysis on the actual site and wrote up the policy to address the specific hazards that occurred there, the way the construction standards require employers to have a site-specific pl plan to address the hazards that they were encountering. And on top of that, the employees were trained specifically on that site-specific program. Right, and so that brings us around to training. Uh, the so, so the judge looked at the policy and said, the written policy, and said, I it looks to me like it's a pretty comprehensive and reasonable policy, certainly enough so to meet the threshold set forth in the written OSHA standard. So OSHA said, well, then they didn't train it effectively or else that employee would have not failed to tie off. But David, as you know, employees fail to comply with corporate policies or OSHA safety standards even when they've been trained properly on how to do it right. And they have their own reasons sometimes for cutting corners that aren't logical. They, it wouldn't be what I would advise. But for some reason, it is a extant fact of life that employees sometimes cut corners. And that doesn't mean that they weren't trained not to cut corners. Right. I think the problem, Manish, is that even with the best of training, there are uh, we're dealing with people. People make mistakes. Sometimes they forget. Sometimes their habits that are ingrained lead them in the wrong direction. There are a lot of different reasons why, but the law in this case puts the burden on the employer to show that they have took really, I would consider to be um, not necessarily extraordinary, but certainly beyond the normal uh, reminders and, and uh, reminders of carefulness that employers uh, normally do to, and that we all do in our normal daily lives. But what the law requires here is something beyond that. And that's what the training and um, 
the remainder of the uh, employer's efforts are were designed to address. Well, to that point, David, you were talking about how the the folks at Berg Electric put on and the supervisors put on very good evidence in defense of how they tried to do everything right. Uh, on this subject, they they testified. The supervisors testified that look, every employee who comes onto the project, they're given fall protection training as to our policy on or, as part of their new employee orientation. And the, uh, during that orientation, they're, they're given the employee handbook and they're given the injury protection program here at the corporation and fall protection training. Then, after orientation, we have uh, training for the same employee, once again, that's uh, targeted tailgate training, meaning right there at the site, uh, as you're about to start your shift, they target it to the hazards of the day and site-specific training, which talks about the hazards and the safe practices that need to be uh, observed at this, during these specific tasks for this particular project. Those training programs, as well as the orientation training, were memorialized with sign-in sheets, and so there's no doubt that they occurred. And I think that that sign-in process is really critical to protect the employer later from the allegation that the testimony might not have been credible by the supervisor. Yeah, let's emphasize that a bit, uh, Monish. We had a case a, a number of years ago where the employee testified that he hadn't had the training. And, of course, we were able to produce sign-in sheets with his signature that uh, challenged his credibility. Let's put it that way. <laughs> David, <laughs> David, you're right. Uh, employees often, there, there's some belief, I think, when an ocean inspector interviews them, that if, if the, and the inspector asks, hey, have you been trained on this? There's some belief on some employees' parts that if they say, I haven't been trained, that that makes it suddenly not their fault. But as you say, uh, uh, diligent employer is not only training employees, but getting records that that employee was trained. And Berg Electric also supplied the content of the training, the, the substance uh, that was tra- that the employee was trained upon. In that, but that wasn't all. In addition, the employer uh, presented testimonial evidence that the employees were given practical demonstrations on how to put on fall protection equipment, uh, how to tie off, how to use the uh, yo-yo lanyard, which is essentially... Uh, the term used for a self-retracting, automatically retracting lanyard, and how to strap it onto the anchor point. And so they were given practical demonstrations. And uh, by the way, in addition to that, the general contractor had required uh, additional training. So there was a real trove of training that every employee had gone through, including that employee who fell through. Uh, So on that point, the administrative law judge said, I'm looking at the training and it looks like it was more than sufficient, and I, I disagree with the agency that that would have constituted a, a shortcoming sufficient to allege a violation. Well, OSHA also argued that, obviously, the supervisors weren't doing enough inspections or else they would have caught this mistake. And they pointed to the fact that the, there was a violative condition, allegedly, within the last two days, first when the employee, other employee had put his foot through the floor, and again when another employee had untied for five minutes to unload material onto support beams. Uh, the administrative law judge said, look, as to the employee who had put, who had uh, come up on, above the ceiling and put his foot th- through the floor, that's not evidence that he had violated the practice, the policy, or his training. He was tied off. And it merely was a violation of their own policy that he had no permission to be up there yet. But but the if the supervisors didn't know about it at the time, that's not sufficient to add to constructive knowledge. At any event, when they saw the hole in the ceiling the next day, they immediately conducted additional training. So OSHA would have to establish that there was constructive knowledge of potential violations by employees 
after that additional training, I would think, in order to reasonably argue that the employer uh, was was not monitoring for potential violations after that training, after that additional training. Yeah, Monash, I think that's really an important point to emphasize again. This business about training following uh, violations that are observed or uh, near misses or other events. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessary in every instance, but being able to demonstrate that on a regular basis when you have an anomaly occur, that you take steps to include follow-up training is really important in making sure that employees knew of and were instructed on the procedures. Yeah, NOSHA tried to twist that around and said, well, if you conducted additional training, that's just proof that you knew about violations by employees. And the administrative law judge, I think, applied basic logic and common sense and said, no, that's that's actually evidence of the employer diligently enforcing. Because uh, right. OSHA later argued, and you failed to discipline employees. Uh, so they tried to have it both ways. And the administrative law judge said, no, that's that's pretty clearly evidence of enforcement and, and not uh, evidence that they knew about the, uh, any violation that would have occurred subsequent to that training. Well, that brings us around to... Uh, the question of monitoring and whether the employer had done enough. And uh, there, the supervisors testified, look, we we continue to monitor. We require employees to call down from the space above the ceiling once they've established the decking. Then we come up and inspect it. And we're constantly on site, walking around, looking for as many violations as possible. OSHA argued, well, you weren't there at the time that the employee, the two employees went up and one of them fell through. The supervisor testified, that's right, I have to walk around and supervise for all safety hazards all around the construction site, the job site, and so I told him to call me, and I'd come back and inspect it. Then employees would be authorized to go up and perform conduit installation. Uh, There's no point standing around until such time as he calls me because I've got other things I can do. And the judge agreed uh, that if he's standing around waiting, then he's not conducting safety monitoring elsewhere. Uh, So he's not required to just stand around and wait. When the supervisors testified, they they talked about their daily inspections. They talked about uh, how they were always somewhere at the job site. They talked about the requirements for employees to call them, for the supervisor to conduct a safety check before employees were sent up for conduit installation. And they talked about all the things that they did for monitoring. And and in in addition to the daily walkthroughs, the daily checklists that evidenced their daily walkthroughs, and the judge was satisfied that this looked like ongoing monitoring. Yeah, Monash, I want to just share with the group the, uh, my experience in a case we had a number of years ago. The The thing that I would recommend to the folks listening is to take a look at the case itself and look at how the uh, supervisors testified as to how they approached these inspections. In my case, we had a supervisor who talked about three different ways that he approached the problem. The first was to conduct regular inspections that were actually classified as inspections. People knew he was there to inspect them from a safety perspective. In another situation, he would occasionally uh, work with the employees on the uh, activity for the day. Uh, In this case, it happened to be a sanitation in a process in a food processing plant and he talked about how he would go out there and and be observant while he was helping the employees and then finally he talked about how he would try to fade into the background and just be an observer uh, while the employees were working to see what they were doing on a regular basis when they didn't think he was paying attention that's the kind of detail that 
uh, brings life to the testimony and gives uh, the trier of fact an opportunity to make a reasoned decision about who to believe in the case uh, when, we're, when, he's, when they're making the determination of what happened. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So, so we're talking about uh, employee discipline and monitoring and the record, and uh, OSHA only pointed to those last two instances in the past two days, one where the employee had stuck his foot through and the other where uh, the employee had gone up and untied for five minutes. To that second one, Berg Electric said, we didn't know about it. We, we can't discipline what we don't know about. As to the first one, that employee had received a reprimand, a verbal reprimand, and Berg Electric was able to, and David, this is a key point, uh, Berg Electric was able to show documentation of other fall protection violations where employees had gotten warnings, had been subjected to additional training, and indeed had gotten last and final warnings, meaning they would have been terminated for an additional fall protection violation. And the judge was quite satisfied with the record of disciplining employees. Yeah, Manish, I think we need to be uh, make sure people are aware. You don't have to have a history of giving disciplinary action for the specific type of violation, but you do need to have a record of disciplinary actions for the rules that are involved. And safety violations should be among those that are uh, in your records. Yeah, I think that's right. There's one other point that I wanted to talk about with you, David. Uh, you and I and uh, Larry Halpern, uh, our colleague from here from Keller and Heckman, have, have talked about this at length. They issued, dis for this specific instance, several days later, Berg Electric issued warnings or reprimands for the coworker who was up above the ceiling at the time that the employee who fell, fell through, and for two other employees, one of whom was the supervisor down below. They did not issue a uh, warning or reprimand for the employee who fell through. And something, and that's something you and I and Larry have talked about at length. Because uh, it's sometimes human instinct to say, well, the guy's in the hospital. And then to visit him in the hospital and say, hey, how are you doing? We hope you get better. Here's your written warning. Uh, it, it defies the basics of, of our human interaction with coworkers that we care about. But I do believe that that employee clearly learned his lesson through the, the eventuality of his injuries, that doesn't dispossess the employer of his duty to issue a disciplinary warning. Right, and I think that it needs, needs to be emphasized. Um, employers should have, have a plan in place, not necessarily a policy or program, but a plan if someone is injured to make sure that they are given the appropriate warning and disciplinary action taking into account the fact that the employee, if the employee's been seriously injured, they're obviously going to need to recover from that injury. But at some point, some effort needs to be made to reemphasize the fact that the employee violated the rules and that there are consequences. And I'd say sooner rather than later, another human instinct is to say, well, let's wait till he comes back. That, first of all, may not come happen. He may come back on limited restricted leave. He maybe six months later. I think you just put it in the record and send him a letter and you just... Try your best to, to, to deliver that message with a spoonful of sugar, but I think you've got to preserve the record that that wasn't tolerated by the other employees, and it likewise wasn't tolerated by him. He was actually the one who violated his own training and needed to be reprimanded. And I think that that, that happens quite a bit uh, with, with cases that I come across, is that employers just don't want to take that step. Well, let's wrap it up with what we always wrap it up with, practical takeaway items on what employers should do in light of the Berg Electric decision. Well, first of all, I think it's, it's clear when you look at the record in the ALJ's decision that Berg Electric did a pretty good job of taking safety and health seriously. Yeah, I think that's really the, clearly the message. They got all of the points covered very well. 
They had good evidence supporting each of their positions. It was That's really the good. second thing. That's exactly right. First, they did a good job of taking safety and health seriously. They had a good written policy. They trained on that policy. They monitored on a daily basis whether or not people were complying with their training. And then they disciplined people if they weren't. But, David, you make a, a good second point, which is, in addition to that, they were also keeping good written records to support all four of those points. And the two go hand in hand. I know that safety and health professionals get into their trade because they care about worker safety and not about paperwork. But paperwork is the way that you demonstrate you did it right and that your company is truly committed to safety and health. So you got to do both. And Berg Electric did both. And so I think that's the takeaway, frankly, in a nutshell. Uh, that documentation is going to exonerate you, but it's also going to help create a record for subsequent safety and health professionals that you're going to bring onto your team, maybe even train, uh, that, that this is how, how to do it the right way. Well, with that said, that's the Berg Electric case. David Servati, you, you were the one who caught that case, and I'm thankful to you for catching it and for spotting it as a OSHA 3030 uh, decision. I tell friends that there's a principle that I call the Servati principle, which is that in the field of OSHA law, uh, we're, we're doing this program every 30 days, and we cover a new topic in about 30 minutes, and there are always developmental areas of OSHA law. And so I sometimes worry about whether or not we'll have a topic next month. And the Servati principle is in the field of OSHA law, there will there'll always be a a new topic worth talking about in our OSHA 3030 community. Yeah, Manish, we, we always used to say OSHA will always rescue us from our failings. <laughs> <laughs> and and we're about 75 episodes on, and your Cervati law has proven to be correct still. Uh, in the between times, there's yet more developments, and you can catch them on uh, our Twitter account, at Rathmanish. Each one of us has a LinkedIn account, David Cervati, Larry Halperin. Uh, other colleagues, Javanay Nukumaram and John Gustafson, for example, as well as me, and, and the Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health LinkedIn page as well. Uh, this program and all OSHA 3030s going forward and for the past few years are rebroadcast as a podcast. So you don't have to be tethered to your desk. You can catch it on the go uh, as a podcast. When you do, please, so that others can find it as a podcast, please remember to rate or like the OSHA 3030 podcast uh, so that it becomes more visible or searchable. And our next OSHA 3030 program will come up next uh, month, September 18th, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. Eastern time. We look forward to seeing you then. And uh, our sister programs, the Tosca 3030, Reach 3030, and for 3030 can be found on our website, khlaw.com. Uh, the Tosca and Reach 3030s will be held on September 11th and November 13th, respectively. Uh, great programs for those of you whose operations are affected by Tosca or Reach. Uh, and we look forward to, to catching up with you then and again at the next OSHA 3030. Until then, David Cervati, thank you very much for joining us on this OSHA 3030. Thank you all who are listening and part of the OSHA 3030 community for listening in. And thank you for forwarding on the invitation to three others every single time you get uh, an invitation to send it on to three new people. Uh, and until then, I look forward to catching up with you in 30 days. Until then, stay safe.